Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is Value Side for Monday, September 18. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. Well, today, a look at two American cities, New York and San Francisco. Well, for much of my career, I spent most of my time meeting with clients and prospects at their office, representing our investment firm to financial companies, banks, insurance companies, and brokers in a couple of different cities. Generally, I worked out of two offices, one in New York and the other in San Francisco. And I want to introduce you to those two cities as I saw them. First office was in New York's Rockefeller Center. I'd like to arrive early at the office at Rock Center when the only ones around are the gaggle outside watching the taping of the Today Show, It was well before the tourists usually came, but fortunately the coffee shop was always open and a cup of joe and I was ready for the day. Rock Center, as the locals know, is a magical place. There is a unique quality to the light caused by that weathered Indiana limestone, which has mellowed over the years to a gray beige, a patina that gives the center a wonderful glow. It's been nearly a century since John D. Rockefeller Jr., son of the famous oil magnate, first decided to build what has become the heart of Gotham. The time was at the height of the Roaring Twenties, although the project would not be completed until the midst of the Great Depression. It was just 15 years after the American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, was founded, and therein lies much of the story. You see, Rockefeller Center represents the old America a time when the country was an agricultural and industrial powerhouse, but not yet a financial one. It was just after the 19th century period of the robber barons. But at least one of those barons remained, and that was John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Now, these families had acquired enough wealth to finance even the most ambitious real estate project, like Rockefeller Center. However, in the case of John D., he utilized all the financial strategies available to him at the time, leasing, instead of purchasing outright, the property from Columbia University. He took a short-term bank loans to manage cash flow, but by and large, Rockefeller relied on his own vast family fortune to build this magnificent edifice. Business was personal in those days. Who you knew was vital in getting a deal. The concept of a Rockefeller Center began when a close friend, Ivy Ledbetter Lee, was invited to a presentation in mid-1928. And the presentation was on selling some property located in Midtown. It turned out that the Metropolitan Opera was looking for a new theater. They'd outgrown their own opera house and were looking to move on. Lee, whose background was in public relations, immediately saw an opportunity for Rockefeller to create a tremendous multi-use facility that could become the focal point of the city. It took some convincing, but eventually Lee persuaded Rockefeller to begin the project and even got Rockefeller to lend his name to it. Plans were finalized two years later, and construction on the now Rockefeller Center began. So it was that the entire project rested on the shoulder of just one person, John D. Today, those first completed buildings in the center are now approaching 100 years old. 
While the design and appearance of the buildings remain as fresh as they were when they were built, the methods of construction, and certainly the kinds of financing, have long passed. Today, no one would consider self-financing a major commercial project like The Rock. Now, the other office I worked at was in San Francisco, and it was in the South of Market District called SOMA. And lately, it's been the cool, up-and-coming section of the city. However, when I began working from this office in the late 1980s, San Francisco was still the stuffy old neighbor to the north of Los Angeles. It was L.A. that was the vibrant and growing city driven principally by Hollywood. It was where all the young professionals migrated and everyone wanted to be seen. In contrast, San Francisco was the home of the staid, conservative banker types, most of which were my clients. That all changed when the technology companies in Silicon Valley, just to the south, decided that they'd like to have a more urban setting. And there was a new way of developing urban properties, the best example of which was just a couple of blocks from the old office. It's the Salesforce Tower. The methods used in financing and constructing this gleaming steel and glass skyscraper are as far removed from Rockefeller Center as you can get. As far as its high-tech curtains of glass are from that traditional Indiana limestone. Today, no visionary puts his family money on the line to build a towering edifice. There's no John D. Salesforce. In fact, for most of the construction, we wondered who the final owner would be. The project began as an effort by the city of San Francisco to clean up what had become a derelict area south of Market Street. It's a vital point. The city sold the land, and it would ease the development process as building inspectors and permit clerks would become much more amiable when the boss is involved. You see, the city controls the permit process, and without the active consent of the city and various regulators and inspectors, this project would have never gotten off the ground. Although construction had not yet begun, the project was still known as the future Transbay Tower. The date was 2007, and a group from Texas, the Heinz Interest Limited Partnership, won the rights to begin building. As it turns out, Heinz would only own the property for five years. During that time, they obtained architectural plans and approvals, but it took Heinz two years, from 2012 to 13, to complete the sale of the property to Boston Properties. Now, Boston Properties is a real estate investment trust and the stock trades on the New York Stock Exchange. Boston Properties then starts construction and lands a lead tenant, Salesforce. Salesforce, in turn, agrees to lease half the building and obtain naming privileges. Just like that, Transbay Tower now becomes Salesforce Tower, the tallest building in San Francisco and the second largest building west of the Mississippi. And it's all done as a speculation, a process known as a spec, when commercial properties begin with permits and constructions before they even know who may ultimately be their tenant. The developer is speculating that the building will be fully rented. The entire Salesforce project was a spec. The city speculated that someone would come along and develop their project. 
Heinz LP supposed that they could get the project approved and begin construction, while Boston Properties imagined that they could build the building and get it rented. Even Salesforce speculated that they could pay their rent over the next 15 years' terms of the lease. The two principals, Heinz and Boston Properties, probably used bank lines of credits to make the down payment, with a mortgage to secure final financing. In this way, the bank, or financing company, has suddenly become a full partner in this development. Now, as long as the lead tenant, Salesforce, remains in place and meets at lease payments, everything is hunky-dory. However, should Salesforce or a substantial number of other tenants falter, then the troubles begin. And those troubles affect not just the owner, Boston Properties, but all the banks and financing companies that supplied the money. And as you may recall, just that happened during the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9. During that time, commercial real estate loan delinquencies rose ninefold in less than two years. Now, currently, everything is working as it should at Salesforce Tower. However, old friends tell me that the rest of San Francisco could be faring much better. Vacancies, especially for retail businesses, are skyrocketing. A city that used to have a vacancy rate in the mid-single digits now is looking at up to 40% of empty store space. Shops and stores that are out of business don't pay rent. It's a world in which each financial partner along the way must rely on all the others. And if you follow the logic, that's how a local tragedy, like the closing of a neighborhood store, becomes a national financial crisis when up the ladder, first the owner, then the lenders, aren't paid. It's a world that old John D. Rockefeller wouldn't recognize. And that's the value side for Monday, September 18. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own.